What's up, everyone? This is Peter Neal from GSP REI, and you're listening to the Real Estate Investing On Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to help both active and passive real estate investors take their real estate investing game to the next level so that you can grow a successful real estate investing business or find out what to look for when you're investing passively in a real estate investment business. Let's get right into it. All right. Welcome back for another episode of the Real Estate Investing On Point podcast. I'm here with my partners, Ron Lockhart and Wade Carroll. Gentlemen, how are you feeling today? It's great. Good. Good. Beautiful okay. day here in Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, let's let's just hop right into it. I mean, the, we we finished the first episode, uh, getting into a conversation around um, knowing your market. You know, getting beyond just the headlines and things like that. And uh, you know, let let's talk about from our perspective. Uh, what is what are those things that that we look at when we're looking at a new market? Um, you know, when when we're looking at existing markets that we're already investing in, you know, what what's our mindset around it? And uh, Wade, I want to start with you because you know the the note portfolio is spread between over forty different states, and then I'm assuming within those states we're we're in a whole lot of different markets. Um, so you. You have to do, you know, you have to find out, you know, what's the value of this property? Um, what is it that you're looking at when you look at a market, uh, when you do your research and things like that? You know, I mean, what are the top things that uh, that you tend to look for first? Should we have changed clothes? So we're doing two episodes in I, one I, day. I was thinking it's exactly supposed to be like weekly. We're not going to be that. We're not going to be that fancy. Like we're Steve Harvey <laughs> with the Family Feud. We'll just put I a different know. suit on every time. No, let's not get that fancy. Okay. I think people understand how this stuff goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, market research. Um, we we do pay attention, to, obviously, to the markets quite a bit. And we we typically start, and I'm going to speak to notes because that's what I know better. Um, but obviously, notes are backed by a piece of real estate. We usually start with more general core logic type type information when you when you're assessing an entire state at a time. Obviously, there's many markets inside there. But and again, I I spoke to California earlier. So we we look when we look at California, you're looking generally what the real estate retrades are. Are looking like are they going up are they going down and you can see quickly in a state like uh california when you get over coastal those prices have boomed the last several years and they're starting to you know trickle down a little bit juxtapose that to the counties that are more inland uh the reverse is true property values can continue to rise rise they're more affordable so transactions are being done people that couldn't afford you know the coastal properties are back out so yeah, we pay attention to that sort of thing. <clears throat> From a rental perspective, uh, it's pretty easy to arrive at what, what I like to call just the rent to value ratio, uh, the annual rent divided by the, the property value. And, and you're looking for 10 or better, really. So those are pretty easy uh, metrics you can find with just a little bit of uh, research, even on Zillow, if you have to rely on Zillow. But yeah, there's a, a whole host of MLS information. And as long as you can plod uh you know the the appreciation rate or that the days on market are uh increasing or decreasing 
because uh, it's it's all a giant spreadsheet, right? You're 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 putting in data points, uh, and then trying to predict that cost to capital over a period of time. If days on markets are elongating, where you're plugging that in, it's going to cause you to bid less. If days on markets are are shrinking, then uh, that's a good sign. You can you can pay more, right? Well, let me stop you there, Wade, because you make a good point. You know, you're 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 saying you're 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 basing your pricing. You know, what you're going to pay for the asset off of the market. Is there a time when you would say, I just have, I'm not, I, I don't want to be in this market at all? I mean, I, and because, and this is going to be different for somebody like you compared to a one off, you know, real estate investor who's maybe just buying a couple houses a year or something like that. But, you know, are there markets where you would just completely avoid uh, 100% or is, is there always going to be a price that, that would make sense in, in almost any market? I mean, there, there are places we avoid, right? But, and, you know, had you asked me this 10 years ago, I'd have a different answer, right? But right now, the rising tide raises all ships, right? So just about everywhere seems to be working, especially if you have an advantageous entry point. Um, but typically, I avoid California just because everyone wants California. Typically, I avoid Florida because everyone wants Florida. I don't want to have to pay 80 cents on the dollar for a Florida asset when I can get New York for 45 I'd rather take the time and make the money than than compete. And again, this is this is specific to notes. But yeah, there there are markets I avoid now, but that's more because the competition is so high. You know, Georgia with very short foreclosure rates, it's very uh competitive. So I like to go to markets where it's less competitive. Everyone avoids Cook County, Illinois, because it's miserable. Yeah. You can buy them a lot cheaper there. So if if you've if you've worked out a process that you can manage the complexities of some of these markets, um, I I love them. And, and we we can say that with Baltimore. A lot of people they dump on Baltimore. It's a shrinking city or whatever the crime or whatever. But if you if you have the means to find uh, your entry point uh, is low, and you have the means to renovate those assets. Um, I think that's a plus, not a not a negative. Because I, I don't, you will not repeat the the same rent of values that you're getting in a Baltimore, pretty much anywhere else in the country. You surely not get anywhere in Florida, anywhere in California, really not even in Texas. And it's because our entry points are low, and we're able to add value. So if so, if I try to answer, where would I never buy assets right now? I don't know. Well, and you bring up a good point too, because it comes back to the strategy. You know I mean, like when you're talking about notes, you're in and out of those assets relatively quickly, right? You know what I mean, you're not holding them long term as a rental. Um, so, it, depending on the on the strategy, you know, is going to change going to change a lot of that, right? Of course, yeah. So let's kick it over to for the for the rental side of the business, Ron. What's what's your thoughts? What's your take when when you're looking at a market, um, you know, and and you're going to hold for a long period of time compared to you know a quick uh, like fix and flip type strategy, whether that be a hard asset or or, or the note. Sure. I mean, when we look at a market, uh, we want to make sure first that there's a demand, and and how do you how do you determine if there's a demand? Um, you know, we look at the industry that is either there or that's coming there. 
Um, if it's a metropolitan area, a lot of times we will we'll look for cities that have a, a strong life sciences pre- presence, technology, hospitals. Um, and once we determine there's a demand and we start to analyze the different the different markets within the market, you know, geographically, where where do we want to be? Um, we look at, uh, you know, entry points from an acquisition standpoint. What, what's it going to cost us to acquire an asset? What's it going to cost us to develop it? And what's going to be the value um, once the the assets fully developed? Um, you know, I've said this for years for our model. Our, our models, a cash flow play, not so much an appreciation play. Um, you know, we'll try and look at historical averages and predict a conservative appreciation. And we're not looking for markets where values are going down, um, but we're not looking for, we're not picking a market just because of appreciation. Um, we certainly, it's in the back of our minds. We're factoring it in, but that's not the main driver. Um, so we'll go into the multiple listing systems, any public records, and we'll look at um, you know where where properties are trading. You know what what's their value going to be when they're completed? Um, you know what's our cost uh, of construction? Um, you know is it somewhere we can bring our own teams? Or are we going to have to bring in one of our construction managers to um, to oversee some third parties? So there's a number of factors that that go into deciding whether it's the right market for us. But primarily, there has to be a demand. We have to make sure that we can acquire and develop for a certain dollar amount. And we need to make sure that the property is going to appraise because we utilize portfolio refinances at the at the prop, proper after repair value. We, you know, our model has always been pretty pretty strict, and we always like to create somewhere between thirty and forty percent equity in a property after it's been acquired and developed. So if we can make all of that work, and we see demand, and we see demand for the foreseeable future. You know, then we'll, we'll you know, it, then then it's a, a market that fits what we're trying to do. Yeah, you kind of you 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 both bring up a good point, and I'm, I'm I'm looking at this from the two different perspectives of the note side, and then the hard asset, the rental side, um, and the note side too. We'll have to take a deeper dive just in general of, of on notes and and weighed what you do on on the note side of the business, and and just the different strategies within note investing um, on a future episode to help people to understand because um, there is certainly a hard asset side to it depending on what the strategy is and wait for what you primarily do um, you're going to end up with a property and and you're going to have to sell that property just like you would any other property um, whether you bought it in the no position or not um, but I think what's coming to my mind is if I'm putting on the hat of somebody who's new to the business um, or is 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 trying to better understand a, a, a team to invest in. Um, I think it co- comes down to like the core competent competencies of that company and of those people that's going to drive where they land in the market. Um, so, like Ron, you you made a good point. You know, you're 
what what you can get construction done for is going to drive where where you're at in the market. You know what I mean? And 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 what your strategy is as well. You know what I mean? Wage, you know, your your access to deals through HUD and things like that um are are going to drive what your strategy is and and you know what 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 you do. Um so as a as like a new investor or somebody looking to get in, it, I think it feels, it seems like they really need to know themselves uh, and, and understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then, you know, kind of see what it is, what, what they can add to, you know, how they can start a partnership or something, you know, to, or find people uh, that will complement. Um, so mm-hmm. you guys, you, you following where I'm, where I'm coming from here? Like I, I'm trying to think like, you know how this how this conversation can be beneficial um to somebody who's who's new to the business when it comes to you know picking a market um there's more that they need to look at than just demand and things like that you I mean there's there's initial things of what what's their strengths and weaknesses and things like that um even before before they you know decide what market they want to invest in and what kind of strategy they want to want to employ um What's your what's your t- what's your take, Ryan? You know, what I mean, you're you're coming at it from a construction background. You know, what I mean, like from from my perspective, one of the reasons I I partnered with you and uh, and you know it was because of your construction background, um, and that I felt like you know made made your ability to get pricing and get projects done quickly, um, you know, possible. Um, so what what kind of you know what led you into that, the construction side of the business and, and stuff like that? You know what I mean? Like what would your, um, how did I end up in the construction business? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, cause I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about this from a, from a person who's new to the business. You know what I mean? Like, and they're, they're trying to get started. They're thinking, you know, how do I get started? Or, you know what I mean? Where do I invest? Um, but it, that, you know, what market should I invest in or something like that? But it's going to depend like on, well, what's your strengths and, and weaknesses? You know what I mean? Like, and what are you, what are you good at or not good at, or what access to to team and relationships do you have? Because that's going to depend on whether you're fixing and flipping or buying and selling or doing single family or apartments or notes or industrial or whatever it may be. You guys follow me? Well, yeah, I mean, look, everybody has access to the same information, you know, for the most part. Uh, you know, if you don't have access to a multiple listing service, you can talk to a, a, a realtor in whatever market you're focused on, and you can get that information. So, you know, getting the information, digesting it, dissecting it, everybody really has the ability to do that. You know, assuming you're you're understanding it and you know what your entry point should be. You know, assuming access to capital, whether it be through cash or 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 debt financing, you have some access to capital. You know, everybody has those same kind of barriers to entry. Where I th- see things always go, you know, off the rails for people is on the construction side, um, because you can you can talk to contractors, you can talk to construction managers, you can understand you can get bids you can understand what something should cost but when it boils down to that execution side of it that's where people i think have the biggest problems and you know if you don't have the relationships from a you know i'm not i'm not trying to give general contractors a bad name here but 
you know, a lot of times smaller or first time investors get taken advantage of by, by general contractors. You know, they get a bid, they write them a check and they don't do what they say they're going to do. So, you know, there are ways to try and avoid that or at least do your best to prevent those things from happening by getting referrals, talk to people that have done business with these general contractors or construction companies. And, you know, that that's how you can try and mitigate some of that risk. You know, I just think, you know, assuming you get past that, you know, property management would be the next um, area where I see people have the most problems, you know, not hiring the right property manager. You know, you asked me earlier how I ended up in construction and, you know, in the late 90s, and I wouldn't advise anybody to do what I did. Um, it was truly learning. I was young. I bit off way more than I could chew. Um, the market worked in my favor. Uh, our first project, which was a, a 7,000 square foot new construction, it took me almost two years to build and I broke dead even on it. And, you know, thank goodness I wasn't married with kids or uh, I might have had some problems. But uh, I also learned a lot through that whole process. Um, and it allowed us to have a successful new home construction company at the time. <laughs> so my, my point in saying that is I would advise nobody to go down that path. But when somebody's trying to get into investing in real estate, whether it be for a rental or a fix and flip or, you know, a spec home. You know, again, we all have access to the same information. And if you can understand it and decipher it, you can find out, you can, you can, you can find out the, the proper entry point, the proper acquisition, but it's that construction piece of it where I really do believe people have the biggest problem. And even, and, and I'll say this, and, you know, Wade can attest to this. I mean, he deals with general contractors all across the country. I mean, I, I can't speak for him, but, but I, I would say he, you know, probably one of the biggest frustrations is, you know, keeping your arms wrapped around them and keeping them to timelines, keeping them to budgets. It's difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because I'm trying to think, we're going down the path of, you know, the the market and, um, you know, what are the the kind of the key elements to look at, factors to look at in the market. And there's a part and there's a piece in the back of my mind where I'm thinking, if you can't execute, I don't even, it doesn't even necessarily matter. You could be in the best market in the world. Now, maybe some things would be taken care of through appreciation and, and things like that. You I mean, you, you could write some wrongs over time or something like that. But, you know, I, I, I just, the thought in my mind is if you, if you can't execute, it doesn't necessarily matter what market you're in or what the market conditions no. are. And, you know, and if you're in a normal market, appreciation is not going to help you. I mean, if you look at the historical average of appreciation over the last hundred years, it's 4%. So, you know, when we look at, when we model, that's the appreciation we look like. I look at, I actually think we have like 2% appreciation in our model. You, know, you can't rely on that. You can't rely on, on what we saw over the last three or four years. Um, you can't rely on what we saw, you know, in the early, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, which which Wade remembers that. I mean, we had some some crazy appreciation back then in certain markets. I know 
we were we were doing uh, spec homes down on the the Jersey Shore, and the appreciation was reminiscent of what we saw the last three four years, and in some cases, it was more than that. Um, that to me is dumb luck. That that's not anybody that projected that type of appreciation. I would love to hear their rationale behind it because who knew a pandemic was coming? You know, who knew knew the whole work from home thing was going to become so big? So, you know, I think you can project for some appreciation in certain markets that are evolving where there's a driver, like a new business or a company coming to that market. Um, there's certainly catalysts for that. But that's more, you know, tr- that's more mild appreciation, not the hockey stick kind of stuff that we've seen, you know, over the last three, four years. So I would never look at appreciation as a bailout from a, from a failed project. What's your thoughts, Wade? Well, I, I mean, if you're speaking to people contemplating you know, get, getting into this, this field, whether it, as an investor or, you know, doing the work yourself, <laughs> Uh, you you really first need to understand uh, the finance side of it. Um, getting your debt, like if if we're just buying a a market uh, a property that's ready to go in any given market, and you're paying market for it, you're gonna have to assume your loan is going to be ADLTV, right? I, I don't I, for an investment property, I don't think they're getting a whole lot tighter. Are there any ninety percent loans out there right now, Ron? Somebody was. No, doing um, I mean, some, no. but I mean, the norm is more like seventy, seventy-five. Yeah, for, yeah. for investment properties. So if you're if you're fortunate, and you can find an ADLTV loan. You know, you're you're putting twenty thousand dollars down, right, on a on a hundred thousand dollar property. So it's eating up cash quickly. So how many of those can you do if you have to keep writing twenty thousand dollar checks? It's probably limited. If you if you have the ability to to renovate. Then you can buy that same property, say for forty, put sixty in it, and refinance it, and get all your money back, right? So now you've you've refinanced a home and you have one hundred percent of your cash back to go do it again. So understanding how the financing side, the debt side of this venture works is super important. And then if you can if you can blend that with an ability to either oversee the contractors or be the contractor yourself to keep most of that value add to yourself. That's a huge benefit, huge benefit. And to Ron's point with the, what, what we do, I, I usually have to hire a contractor, you know, in Rhode Island or some state far away, and he's got to make money on the deal too. So whatever I pay for that construction is probably 20 or 30% higher than if Ron was doing it himself for, for the benefit of the portfolio. So e- even while I, when I hire a GC, I gain equity by virtue of fixing a distressed asset. I'm still paying likely 20 or 30% more than an individual doing it himself. And, and again, if you're, ta- if you're talking about 20% down on a house, that, that's it right there. You, you've earned that 20% for free, that sweat equity, which is, uh, invaluable. So, Peter, to your your point, looking a little bit of introspection. What are my skill sets? What am I capable of doing? And then marrying that with the type of debt or lender you're working with uh, is a huge game changer. Am I writing checks to buy these things? 
or are the or are the properties writing those checks for me? It's a huge, huge difference. And that's the difference of being able to do one or two or doing 20 or 30. It's math. Yeah. That's all it is. There's so many like different uh, pathways we can go down here, and I'm, like so many questions are are firing through through my brain right now because I think there's there's um, you know that people ask me. I mean, why why do we invest in Baltimore? And I mean, or why do we invest in Philadelphia? And and there's a, a lot of reasons, but you know, one of the reasons that I come back to is you know, well, that's where we're from. And I mean, that that's where we're from. That's the markets we we grew up in that we know. Um, and that's, that's where our boots on the ground and that's where our, our teams are. And, you know, we have guys and, uh, you know, people on the crew that can execute in those markets. Um, so I, I think, you know, so many times from, from a general standpoint, you know, people, people look at, you know, the, well, you know, certain factors for the market that would drive people to invest there, but not everybody, especially smaller investors, um, not everybody has the ability to just go to some booming market or something like that. And then to your point, Wade, earlier, uh, you know, booming is going to drive a lot of competition as well. It's going to be harder to find those, you know, discounted properties and find value. Um, so, it's it seems like there's a lot more to it it's not just about you know finding this great market it, and maybe it, it i think it differs from strategy too you know what i mean because i i think a lot of i see a lot of you know friends of mine who are multifamily syndicators and they're just constantly going to you know booming markets i mean where there's tons of competition where uh, a lot of the the appreciation and and ec- economic growth in those markets i think have already been baked into the prices um so what's what's your take you know both of you on you know a booming market uh versus a more stable market uh versus the market that's close to home uh where you have connections and you have boots on the ground and you can get things done what what market would you guys rather be in I mean, you obviously want the drivers for the market. I mean, there needs to be something to create the demand. You know, obviously, you'd always prefer to have it closer to your home base. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, certainly we could execute another market as well. Um, it's a combination of factors. Um, you know, you got to take into consideration the, the scale you're you're looking to achieve. if. You know, you're trying to be an invitation homes. You know, you're going to have to go to multiple markets to get over a hundred thousand doors. Um, if you're looking to to acquire a thousand properties, you know, that's something you can most likely, if you're near a metropolitan area that has that demand, you could do that in one market. So, you know, I think there are a couple of there's more than one factor there. It's you know, what's what's the scale you're trying to to achieve is it you know is there the, there has to be a demand there um and certainly if it's if it's it's closer to your home base that would be preferable and i'll i'll ask you this in a second run too but <clears throat> baltimore's somewhat reminiscent to me of of houston back i guess it was the late 90s early 2000 and this is kind of what got me into real estate in the first place but there in in Houston, there is no geographic limitation. The the city would just grow out and out and out. And sometime around whatever ninety nine two thousand, all the new construction was you know an hour and a half outside of downtown. 
all of the single family homes immediately around downtown were all war zones. Uh, crack houses, dilapidated, boarded up. No one wanted to be there. <clears throat> so in the suburbs, we would drive past all that dilapidated property to get to, you know, downtown Houston, wherever you're working. And it got to the point where it was so ridiculous to get from the suburbs to downtown that people finally started buying these crack houses right next to downtown Houston tearing them down and building these big three-story townhouses and whatnot became a big deal. And at the time I was snapping up little vacant lots around the town and we saw lots, you know, trading for a few thousand dollars to 50 cents a foot. It was insane. And you kind of look at Baltimore the same way, but it, but it actually has geographic limitations all to the Southeast because it's on the coast. But your 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 downtown city hadn't changed. It's it's still downtown Baltimore. So new construction is happening in the suburbs. It's more difficult to get in in town. Yet there's all these dilapidated and vacant homes that have been abandoned for a decade, all in and out and around Baltimore, which is where your hospitals are, which is where your mail is. All those big perks of a big city are still downtown. Suburbs are getting further and further away. So I think there's an opportunity here, the whole value add. You know, you, you can't really build new construction in downtown Baltimore. So you you have to find available assets and, and there's plenty of them in Baltimore. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're adding value by virtue of buying existing assets that have been overlooked for a decade or more. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I I could be... Don't quote me on this, but I think I'm generally right here. I think there's something like 17,000 vacant homes in Baltimore City. Um, you know, people ask all the time, well, why doesn't a bigger company come in and redevelop that? You know, it doesn't really fit their model. That's not what they do. You know, the bigger companies, you know, 17,000 homes sounds like a lot of homes and it is a lot of homes but you you take like an invitation homes or you know a group like that that that's not what they focus on that's not the price point they focus on you know the 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 metropolitan redevelopment asset is not what they do so for for a big big company to come in or even like a BlackRock and spend the kind of money they'd want to spend, I, I just I don't think they could do it. I mean, they certainly could spend the money, but then it's the process in and of itself. It's like the redevelopment of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's people ask me all the time, well, well why aren't more people doing that? it's easier said than done you know the barrier to entry is not is not difficult from a price point for sure you know finding competent builders or general contractors you know you can and you can't you know and it's and then on top of it managing scattered site single family homes is a whole nother component to this that that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, but that's not like that, that's not like um, managing a you know 500 unit um, apartment building. They're two different. They're two different products. Totally two different animals. 
So I, I know I'm kind of like talking in circles here a little bit, but there's no question that there's the demand for the housing there. The big problem has been finding incentives, and I think a lot of this falls on the city to one extent or another, for developers to come in and redevelop that stuff. Because, again, large developers don't want to go buy three on this block, five on that block. You know, they want like 15 blocks. And that's, you know, you can't really do that um, because there are homes on those blocks that are owned by people that aren't going to get sold. Um, so there's some complexities to that. Well, and that, that Wall Street Journal article where they're talking about these big rental outfits, fits, uh, invitation homes and, and those, I mean, when they're, when they're buying a, a single family for rental, they usually limit the construction on that to about 10 or 12 grand. Yeah. And those would be items that don't require a permit, number one, just for simplicity's sake. And then they admit here that they're actually doing better when they develop, uh, entire neighborhoods, new construction. But again, that's very different where you're, sure. not, you're not having to pull individual permits or assess the specific deficiencies of whatever asset scattered all across, you know, a city. Rather, they have a 15 acre parcel and every everything is uniform. All the same items are going into every single home. See, and, and it's in a single location. Sure. It's a, a, a different a different animal. And and if they were doing that in Baltimore, they'd be in the suburbs, which isn't solving the problem, the inner city problem. No, it's not solving the affordability problem either, because you you look at the average price point of the homes that are developing in those new construction, you know, um, developments. They're not one hundred eighty five thousand dollars homes. You know, they're yeah. you know three hundred, three fifty upwards, um, and it's different also because you're you're hiring a large building company to build those homes it's very different than in the city where you're going around it's predominantly rehab work although the majority of like what we do is taking buildings down to the bricks and then reframing everything's brand new for the most part so you know it's it's like new construction to an extent but it's not and it's not consolidated you know really talking about two different two different animals and I think too that you, you we talked about heart, uh, markets that are you know boom towns, and everyone seems to want those, and they're all focused on equity. You know, fine. We're focused on cash flow. Yeah. And if you look at the typical cash flow of a Baltimore property, one one of ours, what's it? You know, four or five hundred dollars net net per door. That equates to about a three percent appreciation rate. And then on top of that, we're still getting the two or three percent appreciation rate. So now our total number is five or six versus some of these guys. If if you're trying to rent out a three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand dollar home in the suburbs, your rent to value is going to be poor. You're not going to make five hundred dollars a door. In no. fact, a lot of people are just trying to break even and they're they're living and dying by that appreciation rate. I just think it's crazy when you could get both. Sure. And, you know, and, and what do you really, I mean, what constitutes a boom town anymore? You know, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not picking on like Montana here, but like, you know, you take like a Bozeman or something like that. Somebody wants to call that a boom town. That's more of like a second home boom town or, you know, yeah. somewhere like Coeur d'Alene or, you know, a luxury, something that's more luxury focused, you know, I, I know, Peter, you're really t- talking about something that's driven more by industry, 
But even that's changed a lot, you know, since the pandemic because of, you know, the work from home environment. You take, uh, you know, one of my favorite places, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, you take a place like Daniel Island or Isle of Palms, you know, that that real estate went through the roof when the pandemic started because people realized, hey, you know, I'm going to go work from home, but I'm going to move down there, you know, so what you got to look at what the drivers are again for some something booming but then also the support of that like yeah. the issues we're having up here in montana is all these people from out of state that can work remotely and i'm one of them moved up here but now we're we're overburdening the service industry right so you're paying the taco bell guy 20 bucks an hour to make a taco i mean that that's not going to last forever right. versus you know an old boom town like phoenix years ago but there's there's enough cheap housing there that you can support a service industry, even if if values do uh, get a little bit ahead for a while. At least you have an, uh, a city with enough industry and, and both service that can support growth versus these small towns up here in Montana and Coeur d'Alene. They're going to get killed in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you really have to look at what what's driving the appreciation in some of these markets. And a lot of times that appreciation doesn't translate to appreciation in rents either um yeah or at least appreciation in rents that make it investable you know from that standpoint so you know kind of going back to to what we talked about uh on the last show you know this information on the surface you really got to peel back the layers to understand it and understand what's happening and why it's happening yeah because it's not the same in every market yeah, there, there's there's major, major differences between what the institutional single family investors buy and, and what the average mom and pop and, and just average regular you know real estate investor who buys a couple single family homes and even just your regular, you know, even larger companies that own hundreds of houses, you know, they just go about the, the strategy completely different. And there's so many reasons for that. Um, but I think one thing, you know, and I've seen this from invitation homes and other companies like that, you know, they're, they're buying off of location. I mean, it's just, it's all about buying in those, you know, high appreciation uh, locations and things like that. And I think sometimes people confuse, um, locate, they confuse the asset class and, and type with location. I mean, whereas, um, you know, oh, well, Baltimore, isn't that a bad location or isn't, you know, certain North Philly or, or Chester or, you know, whatever the area is. I mean, isn't that a bad location? Um, but that's where it comes back to demand. I mean, where, what's your strategy and, and what is the demand in that area for it? I mean, because when, if you look at, if you're investing in affordable housing, um, and you, 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 you're, that's where you're going to find, you know, strong demand, uh, for those types of rentals and for those type, that type a product. Um, it's the same thing in, in other parts of commercial too. You know, I mean, you can have retail behind other retail that's on in, in a great retail corridor, but it's not well located in that sense. Um, same thing with office. And I mean, so many people you know, right now are, are extremely anti-office and office has a ton of problems. Um, but if you're in a really good location and you have a certain type of office, I mean, I, I see it here, you know, Ron, where, where we live, you know, there's still offices that are 100% occupied that are doing just fine um, because they're in a really good location. So, yeah, I think location, you know, is different from, from depending on the strategy, that kind of thing. Am I making sense? Is that... Um, 
Because I think that's something that comes up a lot. Well, yeah. And, you know, when you look at where these big companies are buying the single family rentals, you, you talk about demand and why are they focusing more in kind of that, you know, the uh, the Sunbelt, right? You know, what I can tell you right now where I live in Chester County, Pennsylvania, the demand is massive. You know, homes hit the market. They're gone. A lot of them are cash buyers. There is definitely a component of higher end houses, but there's also a component of, you know, the around here, the middle market house is probably around, you know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. Those things are flying off the market. You know, as soon as they're on, they're gone. Why are those big companies not focused around here? You know, so and, and maybe that's a conversation for for another episode. But I, I think that'd be interesting to, to kind of delve into. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the cost. You know, it's not just the you know, it's not the, the demands here. And there's other markets that are not second home or luxury markets, but are a higher price point market where there is huge demand. So, so why are they not addressing that? But I think that's something that would be worth discussing later. Yeah. Let's put a bookmark in it. I mean, let's uh, let's call it a, a show here, and um, you know, we'll pick back up and uh, continue that conversation on uh, episode three. Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing On Point podcast. Be sure to subscribe and join us live on one of our virtual meetups. You can find more information on our website at gsprei.com. That's gsprei.com. Thank you again and God bless. We'll look forward to catching you on the next one.